Tonight, hey, did you know that global warming could cause a volcano in Canada? No, it's not true, but the CBC broadcast that anyways. <laughs> it's May 24th and you're watching The Ezra Levant Show. Why should others go to jail Why? when you're a biggest carbon consumer I know? There's 8,500 customers here and you won't give them an answer. You come here once a year with a sign and you feel morally superior. The only thing I have to say to the government for why I publish it is because it's my bloody right to do so. The CBC, Canada's state broadcaster, says that global warming could cause volcanoes to explode in Canada. I am serious. Look at this headline. Canada has dormant volcanoes. Climate change could wake them up. No, that's not true. That's, that's not even close to true. That's not even fake news because there's no news there. That's just plain old making stuff up. I won't even call it a conspiracy theory because that would involve the CBC claiming people were conspiring. That's the conspiracy part. No, this is just plain old unscientific gobbledygook, like saying global warming could cause the Earth's gravitational pull to end and we'll all drift into space, or saying that global warming could cause us to mutate like the X-Men comic books. No, that is not even a conspiracy theory. It's just made up stuff and it's kooky and it's embarrassing that anyone would publish that, but it's extra embarrassing and troubling that it would be on the state broadcaster to whom we all pay $1.5 billion a year in taxpayer money and who so clearly they are in campaign mode for Justin Trudeau's carbon tax. That's, that's really what's going on here to scare people of volcanoes in Canada so that people will support doing something. A, I don't know, with the carbon tax. I mean, you don't want us all to be swallowed up by a volcano, do you? Why do you hate children and babies and little critters? Why do you support Islamophobic volcanoes, support Trudeau's carbon tax, or the volcanoes will hurt you? It's so pitiful. It's the worst internet clickbait, too. But it's not even fake news. It's just a lie trying to make us all dumber. Uh, preying on fear and gullibility, that's, that's the CBC. It was obviously prompted by the spectacular news out of Hawaii that one of their famous volcanoes is oozing lava again. Spectacular footage, look at that! It's riveting, it is awful and gorgeous at the same time. That beautiful Hawaiian setting, the brute force of nature, overwhelming anything that mere mankind can do. I don't think anyone has been hurt uh, in this lava, it's all pretty slow motion. Um, some property damage and a reminder that in the grand scheme of things, we are small compared to God's nature. I understand why the CBC wants to show these images, they're riveting, but imagine being the government journalist of the CBC who says, hmm, how can I link this to Canada? Well, obviously you can't. I mean, there were volcanoes pretty much all over the world at one point in time. But in Canada, that was so long ago, you'd have to use words like the Cretaceous period or the Cenozoic era. That's how many tens of millions of years ago. There are a few little cones, as they're called. They're sort of mini volcanoes uh, in some uninhabited places in the mountains. Uh, near the BC coast where some small amounts of cinders and ash have percolated out of the earth. Some of them even had baby eruptions centuries ago, most of them thousands or hundreds of thousands or millions of years ago. I don't think I'd want to build my house on one of these cones, they're called, even though it's been centuries since they even burped. 
But the idea that we're going to see what they have in Hawaii, in Canada, isn't just a joke. It is deeply unscientific. Um, but this isn't science, it's politics. Or more precisely, it's superstition. The superstition needed to give you the zeal required to be a global warming warrior, just like Justin Trudeau and Catherine McKenna and the CBC. I'll come back to the CBC story in a minute. I'll, I'll quote a bit and I'll play you a bit from the radio show they did on it. But first, I mean, you know how volcanoes happen, right? And of course you do, because every kid is fascinated by volcanoes, at least for a few years of their life. I think for a while, kids are fascinated by dinosaurs and volcanoes. So when you're 10 years old, you, you read about them as much as you can. So I think literally everyone in the world knows how a volcano happens. It's about the molten core of the earth. It's, it's got nothing to do with what we're doing here on the surface. It's got nothing to do with whether or not you drive a car or take the bus or pay a carbon tax. It's just got nothing to do with that. I mean, there's the literary device of sacrificing a virgin by throwing her into the volcano to appease the volcano gods or whatever. I'm not sure if that has ever happened in real life, that a virgin was thrown into a volcano, but I know that if it did, it was a murderous cruelty based on a superstition. And if it didn't happen in real life, I think the point of that literary archetype is to show how brutal we humans can be, how desperate we can be, how foolish we can be, how tiny we are and powerless we are when we face the awesome power of nature and it makes us do crazy things like kill people to sacrifice them to the volcano. That's the archetype there, the virgin in the volcano, to appease the volcano gods or something. It's not too different from the brutal sacrifice of people in Central America under the Aztecs. This is a clip from Mel Gibson's uh, movie called Apocalypto. Superstition combined with brutal authoritarian regimes who claim it is necessary to tame nature this way, because volcanoes can be terrifying. I mean, I don't care if you're the richest, most powerful person in the world, even an entire army, if a volcano blows, it wins. Let me tell you a little story here. Let me take a two-minute tangent. In 1883, a volcano on an Indonesian island erupted. The island was called Krakatoa. It was the loudest sound ever heard in the world, scientists say. It was so loud, such a massive volcanic explosion. It was heard 3,000 miles away. People thought it was a cannon firing 3,000 miles away. It was so loud, it burst the eardrums of sailors 40 miles away. It caused tsunamis 150 feet high, killed 36,000 people, and the amount of ash released into the atmosphere, literally cooled the entire planet for five years by a full degree. There was so much particulate pollution in the sky, it shielded the Earth from the sun. That's global cooling, actually. Did you know that volcano in Krakatoa in the 1880s had a religious outcome too? I mean, think about it. Think, the loudest sound ever heard, the most destructive thing ever you can imagine. In, Indonesia is a Muslim country, of course. This devastating volcano and its effects so shocked the country. It, it truly was like something out of the Bible or, or the Koran that it actually prompted a jihad. Here, let me read a passage from Simon Winchester, who wrote the book, Krakatoa, The Day the World Exploded. And thank you for letting me indulge this story. I read this book, it's, it's a great book. Uh, let me quote Winchester, he says, in the case of Krakatoa, the Muslim prelates of Java 
first made this connection. The eruption that had killed so many and ruined so much was clearly, they said, the work of Allah, a divine who was, so the mullahs told their Javanese congregations of the day, supremely irritated that so many of their number were passively allowing themselves to be ruled by white infidel outsiders, the Dutch. To appease the sorely tried Allah, the mullahs said, the Dutch had to be killed and their influence expunged. Rise up, they advised. It's not that surprising. Like the superstitious Aztecs, we must appease the volcano god, whether that's through a human sacrifice or a jihad, or in the case of the CBC, through global warming superstition, and that means you need a carbon tax. It really is the same way of thinking, isn't it? Except that in Krakatoa, something terrible really did happen to Indonesia. Nothing terrible has happened to Canada. We don't have volcanoes, and we won't ever have volcanoes. Let me show you that CBC headline again. Canada has dormant volcanoes. Climate change could wake them up. I'm sorry, that is a lie. I should point out the subtle anthropomorphism. You know what that is? When you ascribe to an inanimate objects human-like characteristics. Dormant volcanoes. Now that's a real word, dormant volcano. Dormant comes from the word for sleep. So I guess that's scientifically accurate enough, but the wake them up. Were they, like, like they're angry gods who were sleeping and we woke them up by being too noisy. Shh, don't wake up the volcano gods, people. They'll be angry. It's like saying Mother Earth. It's not really the mother waking up the volcano gods. That's kooky superstition talk here. Let me quote from the CBC story. As Mount Kilauea, one of the world's most active volcanoes, kicked into high gear Thursday with an explosive eruption, scientists are keeping an eye on a Canadian volcano that is currently unstable. Oh my God, oh my God, do we have an unstable volcano in Canada? Should I be panicking? No, they're lying to you again. They're talking about Mount Meager in BC. It is not unstable, at least not in the way that they're misleading you. I mean, eight years ago, it had a rock slide. A rock slide, not, not a volcanic eruption, it had a rock slide, as mountains sometimes do. Now, no one was hurt, of course. It's in the middle of nowhere. That's what unstable means here. They're tricking you. The volcano itself hasn't spit out a rock or a drop of lava in thousands of years. You see the trick they played on you? They said the volcano is unstable, but what the real facts are is that rock slides are unstable, and not because of global warming. There is no evidence of that at all. They just made that up. That's some foolish theory that they're just flying up the flagpole in the service of a panic narrative to drive their ideological agenda. Here, let me play for you some of the audio uh, from the radio interview. They're so desperate. It's such a stretch. It's so ideological, so brazen, and it will surely guarantee the CBC gets its $1.5 billion next year from Justin Trudeau. Now, this is Laura Lynch, the, the CBC radio host, interviewing a volcano scientist, and you know he's a scientist because he uses the word monster uh, to describe a volcano and that scientist talk here listen so just northwest of vancouver about 160 kilometers northwest or northwest of pemberton um, we've got this big monster volcano it's about two million years old and it's been ticking along changing over that time but we know that there's volcanic gas coming through the ice uh, in fact my team and I and colleagues from UBC have gone in there and made gas measurements but the other thing that is interesting is this 
big ice-clad volcano is also falling down. Uh, we have these huge landslides, and it's the center of the largest landslides in Canadian history. Okay, this sounds concerning to me, and I, and I understand that there was something happened in 2010 that was really significant. Um, so you've got a dormant volcano, and some gases are seeping out of it. Surely they're warm or hot, as often happens from hot springs, for example. That's obviously going to do a lot more to melt any ice than a about a tenth of a degree of alleged global warming. I mean, there's so much junk science here, but you can see already the clickbait headline was a lie, a fake. Their theory is a rock slide. And that, that's what Laura Lynch was referring to at the end, what happened in 2010. Here's a rock slide. Bit of a letdown. And it gets more pitiful. Listen to this. And, you know, it's not related to the volcano being active right now, but it's part and parcel of the volcanic activity that's formed the system itself. It's a big, rotten pile of rock. Rotten. Rotten. Um, and that rotten rock eventually fails. Well, what would trigger the rock to, ca the, to cause a landslide? Gravity. It's always gravity pulling down on things. Hang on. I, I signed up for a volcano story. <laughs> now you're telling me it's just, just gravity and, and, and rocks? Gravity. I, I, thought, I thought there was a global warming causing a volcano story. And you're just saying there's some gravity and some, some rocks. And, and the scientist who first called the rocks a monster, it's a, it's a monster. He now says the rocks are rotten because that's scientist. I, I didn't know rocks could be rotten. But then again, I don't listen to the scientists at the CBC a lot. I'm learning so much. Oh, this is so dumb. And we're all getting dumber just listening to it. I've learned that volcanoes are monsters and rocks are rotten. But let me play you one more clip. This is his thesis. Okay, this is the kooky idea. So let me, let me give you his best case. He says that if you have a huge two-kilometer-thick sheet of ice sitting on top of an active volcano, that ice might be sort of holding it in place. And if then you, if we were to melt this two kilometer thick sheet of ice, that could release the monster. Take a, I mean, let me just show you for a second. We're not talking about Mount Meager. Okay, there is no two kilometer thick sheet of ice on top of Mount Meager. And it is not an active volcano. It's not being kept in place by ice. Okay, there, he's talking about Iceland or Greenland or something. But that's the thread they're holding this thing on. But even this kooky scientist admits this is just a weird theory. Listen. We think actually 10,000 years ago, the end of the last glaciation, that there may have actually been more volcanism, more active volcanoes, because we were removing two or three kilometers of ice. At Mount Meager, you know, it's a much, much smaller system, but really it's a whole sequence of events. Is this an accepted wisdom among volcanologists that this is happening? Oh, no, I wouldn't say accepted wisdom at all. Uh, really, this is new work that is being done by some really top-notch graduate students. Um, and it's pushing the paradigm, trying to move to that next level of understanding for a given system. Oh, so, so he says his theory is not accepted and it's just some students just brainstorming. Huh. Let's look at that headline one more time. Canada has dormant volcanoes. Climate change could wake them up. <laughs> yeah, that's just not true, is it? It's not true 
in terms of true, false, real life stuff. It's not even what the kooky scientist said, is it? He said, no, that's not the case here. Um, it's just propaganda, isn't it? It's, it's worse than fake news. It is a lie. It's a lie. Can you trust a single word that Canada's state broadcaster says about anything? Stay with us for more. Well, I tell you, there's a few issues on which there is a massive divide between the political media elites and severely normal people. Uh, my favorite or least favorite example, depending on how you look at it, is Omar Khadr. All the fancy people said, oh, he was so hard done by. Trudeau only hangs out with fancy people. So he was absolutely certain that when he gave $10.5 million on a public apology to Omar Khadr, the country would say, right on, you're so virtuous, and said it was such a backfire amongst the public that Trudeau later said, oh yeah, I was outraged by that too. There's a few issues like that, but none more pronounced than immigration, as we've shown you before. The Liberal government's own polls show that only 8% of Canadians want to increase the number of migrants to this country, and that latest poll was before the massive waves of people simply walking illegally over from the U.S. I bet the number is even lower now. But there is this theory, this fashion, this fad, amongst the fancy people called sanctuary cities that would, that would say, well, even if someone manages to sneak into the country illegally, even if they're facing a deportation order because they're a criminal, they will find sanctuary in this city and no one will be able to root them out. It's actually a tradition that is seen in the Bible. There were, refu there were refuges where people could flee beyond the, the grasp of the law, but like with these other cases, there's a huge disconnect between severely normal people and the fancy pants who cook them up. Even in California, where sanctuary cities are being brooded, California, the deep blue state, this issue is suddenly turning many local races competitive as people say, yeah, you reporters and politicians, you don't live where the rest of us live. We're against these sanctuary cities. Well, enough preamble. We're joined by a guest who's written about sanctuary cities and how they've suddenly become an issue in the Ontario provincial election. I'm talking about my friend Candace Malcolm. Her column in the Toronto Sun, let me read the headline, Canada doesn't need another sanctuary politician. Isn't that the truth? Candace joins us now via Skype. Hey, welcome to the show. Don't mind me giving a few examples. I really think this is something where the gulf between the official people and the regular people is enormous. What do you think? Yeah, you're absolutely right, Ezra. So Andrea Horvath, the Ontario, she's running for Ontario Premier in the upcoming election there. She just sort of throws out the idea that she wants to make the province of Ontario a sanctuary, whatever that means. I mean, I don't think that the plan has been thoroughly thought through. She, she couldn't even tell reporters how much her, her proposal would cost. Um, but the idea that, that somehow in the midst of this huge crisis with illegal border crossers, with people coming across Roxham Road, increasingly settling in Toronto and Ontario, uh, that now might be a good time to just once again declare Canada has open borders and once again another politician virtue signaling that's going to lead to another influx of illegal border crossings into Canada. Yeah, you know, um, we, we already have become a form of a sanctuary country because Justin Trudeau has basically opened up the borders and I see that uh, almost half of these clearly bogus refugee claimants, I mean, at the very least, they're coming from America, which is a safe country, and quite often they came from a, a, uh, an interim 
from country as well that was safe. They're not refugees under law. The safe third party agreement says so. But Justin Trudeau has already made it loose enough. If Trudeau wants to deport someone, they are awful. And what Andrea Horvath is basically saying is, we are going to hide these deportees, these potential deportees, even from Trudeau. If you are more leftist and more pro-open borders than Trudeau, you're off the charts. <laughs> well, that's a really good point. And I was trying to figure out what exactly the policy would mean, because you're right, Canada essentially already has sanctuary city policies. As soon as a person crosses into Canada, Ezra, they get arrested by the RCMP. So, so most of these people are being registered with authorities. As soon as they do, they get their screening and vetting. As long as they pass the initial security clearance into Canada, they can file refugee applications. They get to, they're set free into Canada, get to go wherever they want. All they have to do is show up on the date of their their um, refugee hearing. And in the, in the interim, they already get access to every single Canadian social uh, program, every welfare program. They already get health care. They already get education. You name it, they get it. So, so what Andrew Horvath is essentially saying is that the policy that already exists, she just wants to basically double down on it, maybe add some policing elements to evade uh, CBSA uh, deportation orders. Uh, but really, Ezra, what we know this is all about is just virtue signaling. It's it's Andrea Horvath showing her moral superiority, showing how generous and nice she is because, you know, Canada's already super generous to refugees. Well, she's going to take it one step further and tell tell these migrants, you know, even even if you're about to get deported, we're going to protect you. And, and she's going the extra mile. I, I think it's despicable. And I think that many Canadians see through it. Like you said, I think that these politicians are really off base with the Canadian public, with the sentiments of the people who, who really don't want to be providing such a safe haven for people who aren't refugees who are abusing the system. Yeah, if you're coming in from New York State, by definition, you are not a refugee. You're someone who was about to be kicked out by Donald Trump because you were bogus or maybe even committed a crime, or you're just someone who has heard that Trudeau now pays for catastrophic health care for foreigners. You go to the front of the list. We've seen stories like that. You know, I should tell you, Candace, I don't have the date at my fingertips, but um, a few months ago, Montreal was debating officially becoming a sanctuary city, too. And again, I don't even know what that means. Uh, I don't think they did either, other than it sounded cool and the Democrats are doing it, so they're me-tooing it. Um, that was rejected, and I saw polls from Quebec. And you want to talk about virtue signaling, Candace. No one doesn't like Quebec society. They are morally righteous. They, they'll let you know how morally righteous they are. Quebec is so burnt out on this issue overwhelmingly Quebecers were against the concept of a sanctuary city. If Quebecers are against it, I can imagine they are in Ontario. Let me throw something at you. I'd love your thoughts on this, Candace. We see John Tory, the mayor of Toronto, saying, we're out of money, all our shelters are full, now we've got to stuff these migrants into college dorms and community centers, and we need tens of millions of dollars. So that's, that's a guy who's not speaking out on a moral basis, he's just saying, we physically have nowhere to put them, we financially have no more dough. Surely, surely that's going to be as odious to Ontario voters as it was to Quebec voters. 
Well, I, I agree. And good for John Tory for actually speaking out. This is an instance of the frontline workers, the people who are tasked with actually caring for the people, actually providing services. As it reminds me of uh, uh, Justin Trudeau's big pledge to accept Syrian refugees and how quickly they did it and, and how they rushed these people into the country. And we had local agencies in Vancouver and Halifax and Calgary asking for the Trudeau government to hit the pause button saying, no more refugees. We can't handle any more people physically. Our, our, our systems are overwhelmed. We can't take any more in our healthcare. We have nowhere to house them. We have nowhere to, uh, no way to integrate them. No language lessons. All of these actual issues. So you know, politicians politicians can sit on their high horse and virtue signal uh, until the end of the day, and then the actual consequences for the people on the ground are a totally different reality. And so, 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 so you, you kind of have these two things clashing. And in Toronto, we're seeing that there is a 500% increase in uh, asylum seekers in the refugee shelters. I mean, somebody has to pay for this. Somebody has to actually uh, work with these people and welcome them and, and make sure that they have a place to live and a place to stay and that they're not going to you know, commit crimes or going to follow Canadian laws. It takes a lot of work. Immigration policy takes a lot of work. And I think these politicians who are just so concerned with their own self-image and, and getting positive uh, attention uh, forget about the actual realities and how difficult it is uh, to handle mass migration on this level. Yeah. You know, um, John Tory's talking about stacking these uh, illegals in community centers. I wonder how many, you know, community meetings, community sports leagues, Boy Scouts, Girl Guides will have to be canceled because, um, because of this. I, I have an idea. Let me close on this. I, there's a, a very large property I know of that's uh, owned by the government. It's in Ontario. Um, I've been there myself. I haven't been there in probably three years, um, but it's. I think it's beautiful. It's been maintained. There's been I think eight or nine hundred thousand dollars worth of repairs put in. Uh, right now, it's just occupied by a chef. Candace, what do you think about opening 24 Sussex Drive? to some of Trudeau's migrants. Right now we know that only the chef lives there. He cooks food for the Trudeaus and then it's driven across the street to uh, the governor general's uh, compound where the Trudeau family lives. What do you think? I think, I've been to 24 Sussex. I think you could easily have 10 migrants live at 24 Sussex Drive. They're already paying for the building. That's my idea. Go there first before you come to my community center. What's your views? Well, wouldn't that be symbolic, Ezra, that Canada has given up so much of itself that we would now give up our, uh, the official residence of the prime minister to migrants. But but that's the double standard and the hypocrisy of these leaders. They always say that Canada can fit more, that we can welcome more, that we should do more. Uh, but then when it comes to what they would actually do and, you know, would they actually house uh, an unscreened, unvetted, self-selected migrant to live in their home with their family and with their children? I doubt it. I doubt it. You know, all of these virtue signaling celebrities and politicians um, and, and fancy people, as you call them, you know, they, they're never the ones that are going to volunteer volunteer to give up their own personal space. Yeah. Uh, they're the ones that build walls around their own home that, that use private security and all that kind of stuff. So I, I think it would be symbolic and, you know, it's such a waste of taxpayer dollars to have it sitting empty. Um, but I, I highly doubt that Trudeau would uh, would go for that. If I was a troublemaker and I am not, Candace, I am not a troublemaker, but if I were a troublemaker, I would hire a, a little bus, take it down to Roxham Road there in Quebec. Uh, once some of these migrants come through, put them in the back of a bus, 
you know, not that far a drive to Ottawa, I would let them out on 24 Sussex Drive. It's a big lawn, too. It's a big house, but it's a huge grounds. So if you just put tents there, you could probably have a hundred migrants. And and what? What does Trudeau have higher standards for his? He doesn't even live there. So you say live with the Trudeaus. No, no, no. I'm not saying live with the Trudeaus. I'm live at the the unoccupied 24 Sussex Drive. I'm going to stop my shenanigans and my brainstorming of goofy ideas, but I think it would be quite symbolic if a busload of migrants showed up at 24 Sussex Drive, they would be given the bums rush right away. They would be told, well, go, go down market, go to where the regular people live, get off swanky Sussex Drive. All right, I'll stop ranting. Last word to you, Candace. Well, you know, that, that that would be at least a step in the right direction. It doesn't seem like Trudeau has taken any leadership on this issue. He doesn't really uh, talk about it. He doesn't really come up with actual solutions. So right now, all we're seeing is people flowing into uh, Canada, uh, basically just to disappear. Hopefully they show up for their refugee hearing. And, you, you know, meanwhile, virtue signaling politicians with no idea how much it would cost uh, want to offer them unlimited protection. So, yeah. you know, hopefully uh, people in Ontario have a bit more sense than to fall for a scheme like that. Yeah, I hope you're right. Well, thanks for taking the time with us today, folks. Uh, the, the article is called Canada Doesn't Need Another Sanctuary Politician. It's by our friend Candace Malcolm in the Toronto Sun. Thanks for your time. All right, thanks. All right, stay with us. More Head on the Rebel. Hey, welcome back. Well, it is coming up close to the Ontario provincial election. And according to, I think it's three polls in a row now from different companies. So I think it's safe to say this is an accurate reflection of the facts. The NDP and the PCs are tied basically first and second place are almost tied, and the liberal incumbents are far back. I am a little bit nervous, to tell you the truth. We're going to see a Rachel Notley situation where the NDP comes up in the middle, uh, the least offensive, perhaps, because some people are never Ford, some people are never win, but people say, ah, the NDP just looked that bad. Uh, well, today, the liberals tried a Hail Mary pass. They said they had an incriminating tape, a secret tape between Doug Ford and an attractive young female candidate named Kinga Surma. And of course the scuttlebutt was, oh my God, was there some personal relationship or something like that? There was the hint. Let me show you the announcements by the Liberals today with their bombshell tape. Got two clips for you and then I'll bring in my friend David Menzies to help analyze. The first is the announcement by the Liberals. Get ready for this folks, take a look. Well, we do have some new information and it implicates Doug Ford himself in the sale of bogus memberships. In fact, it reveals an extraordinary degree of involvement by Mr. Ford in the nomination campaign of Etobicoke Centre candidate Kinga Surma. According to this new evidence, Mr. Ford was involved directly in the sale of bogus memberships on behalf of Ms. Surma. He encouraged people to provide incomplete information, incomplete membership forms, and he assured them that others would pay their membership fees. Oh, that, that's all you got? <laughs> no, I thought you had a bombshell. I thought, you know, there were actually gossip sites out there. You know, I, I don't want to repeat them because it's just gossip, but the, the lurid speculation was was off the chart um so so doug doug ford told people that they didn't have to fill out a whole form that and you think that disqualifies the man from 
being premier. This was the big event. The liberals were hyping this hard. Let me show you the actual audio tape they had, and then I'll bring in my friend David. Take a look. You know what? So, so he's saying, just give us your name. We'll fill out the details. Tell us your name. We'll fill it out for you. That's not even against the. That's not even bogus. That's you know. You know. You get a form, and it's all your details. He just said, give us your name. We'll fill it out. That's not even against a rule, let alone against a law. I. David Menzies is sitting right next to me. I mean, I, I'm not going to play that whole. Like, I, when when you say we've got a secret recording, yeah, I think James O'Keefe of Project Veritas. I think you're going to hear a confession of murder, <laughs> or I mean, not murder, but you're going to hear something awful. And we were so, we're so used to that kind of secret tape business with the late Rob Ford. Yeah, images of him doing crack cocaine, images of him drunk, for example. This is a little bit lame. Yeah, uh, Emily Peller, the former Wendy spokeswoman, uh, as remember that, where's the beef? As you said, this is a nothing burger. I mean, it goes back two years, first of all. Maybe it contravenes the rules. Uh, certainly not a criminal matter. Certainly not a David Livingston criminal matter. Oh, where that's the chief of staff at Dalton McGuinney. Yes, where he scrubbed uh, public documents to prevent others from going to jail. Um, that, you know, and here's the thing. There's a couple of angles to this, Ezra. First of all, does the average rank-and-file Ontarian voter care about inside party politics, especially since, and I'm not excusing it by saying this, but it's especially since they all do this. They all do, and, and worse. I mean, if you and I went to a, a local McDonald's or a Tim Hortons and stood outside with a cl clipboard and we asked 100 people coming out of that restaurant, what do you think of this? Would, even, would it even register with anyone? The second thing, Ezra, is that you know, given that this was coming from the Liberals, I don't see it helping the Liberals. It, you know, I think the biggest winner here potentially is Andrea Horwath, because this is more and more uh, a change election. Uh, I really think Kathleen Wynne, who has a knack of pulling a rabbit out of the hat, she is done like dinner, as Tiger Williams used to say. She is toast. And I think any negativity towards Ford and the PCs isn't going to go to the Liberals to bolster them. It's going to go to the NDP. Yeah. So I don't know why. Maybe this is payback to the NDP. For always propping up the liberals when you know there was a chance to you know have a non-confidence vote with them. Yeah, you know, and I'm again, I'm not saying that I'm for any shortcuts in clerical forms, and you know maybe did they pay their own ten bucks or not? I just don't even think that that rises above what a lawyer would say is de minimis, as in it's so minimal, it's so marginal. How does that go to the heart of issues like do we have to pay a carbon tax? Do we really need more uh, child sex ed? Um, after so many years, maybe we should kick the liberals out. Um, can we get away from the social engineering? How about a break on taxes? Yep. Like, oh, oh, um, yeah, those are all good points. But you know, in 2016, when Doug Ford wasn't even leader, he helped someone fill out forms <laughs> and he filled out their name for them. So I don't think we can impose the carbon tax. This, uh, you know, it, it, the liberals have run an awful campaign. These guys used to be the pros. 
They, they, it, the wheels have come off the bus. Oh, and, and they're desperate. And I mean, in, in some writings, uh, Ezra, there wasn't even nomination. Like, the, the liberals were desperate to find somebody just to run under the liberal banner. People aren't stupid. They know this ship is going down. But again, to go back to that Tim Horns poll, you ask people about the several multi-billion dollar scandals. Orange, e-health, canceled gas plants, green energy, all of which, you know, it is probably numbers that are, are so incalculable, but at the end of the day, is hurting you and hurting this province and hurting jobs in this province. And that's what resonates. And, you know, and later in that tape, to, to show the desperation, mm-hmm. when she said, and she said it twice, and I wrote it down <laughs> about Doug Ford driving his quote, hulking black SUV as he was stalking a, uh, a female uh, PC party member uh, in supposedly an, an act of intimidation. And, and I mean, like, like just throwing everything out there, not just a car, an SUV, it's a big Lincoln Navigator. And, and you know, not, not cherry red, it was black, oh, right? You know? The black hell, it's like the, <laughs> you know, some secret uh, CIA death squad. Yeah. So, you know what, we're laughing, it's pitiful. Um, you know, the thing about politics is uh, when you're laughing at them, it's a sign they're done, eh? And, yeah. Um, the Ontario Liberals have been so successful for so long, they dispatched conservative after conservative. And um, I think Doug Ford will be the next premier. I think there is a real worry about the NDP coming up in the middle, but I think their vote will likely be concentrated in a number of ridings they get a supermajority in. I'm still confident in a Doug Ford majority. Are you? Um, I'm not, Ezra. Okay. Um, because uh, a couple months ago, or six weeks ago at least, uh, what was the lead that the PCs under Ford had? It was close to 20 points. Now the latest poll is showing even Stephen. That is a shock. Talking. Uh, either um, failure on the behalf of the PCs or an incredible renaissance on, on behalf of uh, the Andrea Horvath NDP. And the more and more I look at the climate out there, Ezra, uh, I'm getting this vibe of 1990 Ontario, um, you know, uh, no one saw that coming. Right. To this day, I still can't find one person who admits to voting for yeah. the Bob Ray NDP. Yeah. And, but of course, the Bob Ray NDP government, they almost look like fiscal conservatives compared yeah. to what the McGinty yeah. win liberals have done to this province. And Andrew Horwath, it's crazy. We were talking with uh, Candace Malcolm today about... Um, sanctuary cities. I mean, like that, that's how kooky she is. She wants to make Ontario a sanctuary province. You know what? I... I think you're closer to this file than I am. You're following it much more closely. You're going to the events. So I'm going to yield to your judgment on it. And I will say one thing. In the last generation, it's been an entire generation since Bob Ray won. Actually, you know, what's that, 28 years, if I'm if my math is right. Correct. Um, in that time, socialism has made a comeback. Bernie Sanders, oh, popular. Uh, around the world, socialism is on the march, whether it's in Venezuela, uh, and I think I see some parallels with the U.S. scene. I know Doug Ford doesn't like to be compared with Donald Trump, but I think he has some stylistic similarities. He, he's um, he's generally uh, more confident in towards the media. He's more politically incorrect. He's got a bit of a business background. He's got a big personality. And I see the Bernie Sanders wing 
maybe that's the power of the end. And, and you had a generation of hard left schooling. Uh, so you pumped out 28 years of left-wing grads from school. Maybe you're right. Maybe we are going to see another horrific, and God forbid, a coalition. And, and Ezra, I agree with your analysis. And also, I think when I noticed the screw turning was when <coughs> Doug uh, turfed Tanya Granick Allen. Right. And because, you know, a few days later, there was that uh, debate in downtown Toronto at the City TV News Studios, and there was a bunch of Tanya Granick Allen supporters still holding her signs. And I went to each and every single one of them and said, are you going to be voting PC? And every one of them said no. Now, they didn't say they were going to vote liberal or NDP, but I have the idea that they're going to decline their ballot, you know, spoil their ballot, yeah. or simply stay at home. Well, yeah. I mean, and look at Donald Trump. The guy is a, uh, a downtown Manhattan guy, but he maintains a positive working relationship with social conservatives. No one would ever say that Donald Trump is a social conservative. I mean, he's, you know, even in just his personal life is is sort of the opposite of social conservative. And this whole Stormy Daniels thing reminds people of that. But first of all, he never pretended to be. Yeah. But he has a working relationship and a respect for whether it's the NRA types or pro-life types or Christian types. And my point is... Um, it doesn't tar him or hurt him. No. Doug Ford's team, who threw Tanya Granick Allen under the bus, I think you're right. I think it it broke off part of the coalition, demoralized them. And wouldn't that be something if that co that actually cost them the campaign? I, I think it is, Ezra. And it breaks my heart to see this. Um, and he, that's the biggest difference between, I think, Doug Ford and Donald Trump, which, of course, Kathleen Wynne compared the two men uh, earlier this month. The, the fact is, is that Trump, if his advisor says, oh, well, you know, the, the Washington Post and the New York Times and CNN and MSNBC, they're all saying this, so you better do something to appease them. He'd tell them to go to hell. Yeah, and he'd fire them. Yeah, he, he, and, and, and it would just tweet you're out. fired, yeah. And Doug Ford somehow got convinced to drink this Kool-Aid. Yeah. And the fact of the matter is those, you know, um, you know, nattering nabobs of negativity in the media party, Ezra, are going to continue to hate him. Yeah, they're going to hate him no yeah. matter what. And the thing is, if you bend the knee to the media party, you demoralize your friends, you yep. embolden your enemies, you allow the, the critics and the haters to set the campaign narrative, and um, you lose the enthusiasm in your base. Donald Trump's base was so enthusiastic. Yes. Hillary Clinton's were so grudging. Yeah. And I think it'll be interesting. It's too early to say, I'm not writing them off. I still think he has a good chance. You're more in touch with it than me. You're worried about him losing. You make the good point. He's lost a 20-point uh, lead. Yep. It's too early to say. Um, I hope for all of our sakes, for Ontario's sake, that Doug Ford wins, but it's too close to call right now. Last word to you. I fear for the province. I fear for that, you know, Bernie Sanders-style socialism. I mean, one of the most recent things was it looks like um, Andrea Horwath wants the uh, Pickering nuclear plant to close oh, down. Crazy. And in a shocking example of uh, double talk or Orwellian newspeak, Ezra, this is a job creation program because we need all these temporary jobs, you know, these demolition men to come and take oh this down. God. Really what it does what is... What are you going to replace it with? What is she she's going to replace me. I've heard that story. Well, it gets rid of 4,500 direct jobs. It gets rid of, according to the Chamber of Commerce, 7,500 ancillary jobs. And, it's the, the and now you've got to... Yeah. It's the most reliable fuel in the world. Yeah, and now you've got to go to Quebec and buy more energy from them. That's so uh, that's NDP economics yeah. uh, 101 couched in, this is a job creation program. I am very scared what's yeah. happening, Ezra. You know what? The people are always right in a democracy, but I do not want Ontarians to be punished uh, in the manner that they will be punished if they choose Andrea Horwath. 
Rachel Notley won the Alberta election fair and square. No one would ever say she rigged it or acted or anything. And Albertans have been paying yeah. a deep, deep price for that foolish choice they made in 2005. I fear that if Ontarians vote for Andrea Horvath, um, get ready for Notley-style pain, Bob Ray-style pain. Yeah. And um, this province that is a have-not province will fall even further behind. I don't even want to contemplate it. Let's keep our fingers crossed. We got to go. It's great to see you again. Okay, yeah, we are talking another fifty shades of gray. If they get it, oh my it. god! So you go ahead. All right, right. we'll stay on this front. I'm really glad Thank you're you, covering Ezra. it. All right, there's our friend David Menzies. He's more in touch with this scene than me, and you heard him. He's a pessimist. That scares me. <laughs> <laughs> stay with me. More ahead on the Rebel. Welcome back on my monologue yesterday about environmental charities breaking Canadian tax laws. Tammy writes, It's not surprising this government cancelled audits and didn't follow through on a decision to revoke charitable status for those who violate the law. Clearly another example of their shady dealings and willingness to set aside laws for those who are in the government's favor or serving the government itself. You know what? It's that Lebrano's way. Um, it's so important that the Canada Revenue Agency be Absolutely nonpartisan and nonpolitical. I mean, could you imagine if every time you changed parties, all of a sudden, okay, conservatives, you don't have to worry about your taxes, but liberals, you do. Okay, now the liberals in power. Liberals, you don't have to pay taxes, conservatives, you, like, it, of, and it's not just who has to pay taxes. All the confidential information that goes into the CRA, it has to be clean as a whistle. I mean, just imagine all the, the scams and the schemes and the danger. You have to have the absolutely most trustworthy people in the country there. Trustworthy in some ways even more than a police officer, right? Because a police officer to get private info about you has to get a search warrant and you have to do something wrong and da da da. The CRA, they get all your personal details. You're compelled to give it to them in a way that it, I mean, you could type in any name there. You could type in your enemy. You could type in an ex-boyfriend or girlfriend. Like the, you need the most trustworthy people in the country. Would you agree with me? And now what you have is the prime minister's office saying tap, tap, tap on the shoulder of the auditors. Hey, guys, um, those are my friends. So can you suspend the audit? Yeah, that's not how it works. That's not how it works in a, in a country with the rule of law. If someone failed an audit, you give them their appeal, you let them go through the rules, and if they fail the audit, they fail the audit. You do not exempt your friends from being cheaters under the Tax Act. Bruce writes, it's deja vu all over again. Dad Trudeau's liberals were just as corrupt. So were liberals after him. When will people realize that the Lebranos are the party of sleaze? Yes, that's part of it. But I think the second part is the liberals did not hide this. I quoted from a CBC story where I first learned this. They're boasting about it. And the media says, okay, so you're, uh, you're intervening to let your friends off the hook. And they're writing this as a good story, as a happy story. So yeah, there's corruption in the government and in the CRA. Sorry, that's what that is, telling, telling auditors to stop auditing a tax cheat. That, that's corruption. That, that's pretty much the definition of it. But then the media is saying, yeah, this is cool. That's a form of corruption, too, especially when they're a state broadcaster. Paul writes, My hair cannot possibly get any grayer. 
Yet you seem to be conspiring with book publishers to pile titles on my wish list of books that I must read. If I must be tortured, this is the way I want it. You are stacking up back-to-back -back great shows. Keep it up. I just listened to you and Lauren Gunter, great guy. You reviewed Conrad Black's latest book, but from what you have said, I may enjoy one of his more substantial works. Conrad Black, history, nonfiction is on the list. Very much enjoying being a proud rebel producer. Hey, that is very friendly. Thank you for that note. I appreciate the positive feedback. I will confess, I was a little too starstruck. I mean, I, I've met Conrad Black a dozen times before, but uh, I, I was in super fan mode. I think it showed. And I, I got a little giddy there, as I am sometimes with Jordan Peterson. What can I say? I love those guys so much, and I want to have like a three-hour conversation with them. And I'm trying to jam that into half an hour. And I'm also trying to let them get a word in edgewise, so it's not just me basking in them. So I'm glad you liked it. I think I talked too much, but I think I gave them 51% of the talk time. Anyways, that's the show for today. Can I tell you, I read that book on Krakatoa. I read it more than 10 years ago. Um, when it came out, I thought, well, I mean, I'm not the kind of guy who would say, I'm going to get a book on volcanoes. Actually, a friend had it and he gave it to me. And I just thought, Krakatoa, what's that? And I just started flipping through the book. I thought, oh my God, that's the most interesting story. There's so many shocking facts and it was just in the modern era. I mean, f uh, photography was still very nascent. Uh, global communications were still very rudimentary. But uh, to see the effects of the world's worst volcanic explosion in the recent past was just an astounding, fascinating story. If you're looking for books, I mean, this is not a political book. It's a historical book and a scientific book. Uh, there is that political religious element that I talked about, the jihad that came out of there. Um, frankly, it's a book that gives you a break from the Sturm und Drang of today's politics. Like, there's no mention of Donald Trump in the book. There's no mention of Justin Trudeau in the book. Um, it's very alien to, to a lot of things. It's, as you can see, there was a colonialism reference there. Uh, if you just want an interesting book about volcanoes and you will bug your friends with these details uh, for days, may I recommend that book? Just thought I'd throw that out there. All right, well, the show's gone on for long enough. Thank you for uh, joining us today. Um, I'll be back tomorrow doing the noon hour thing. I don't know if you tune in, but noon Eastern, 10 Mountain, 9 a.m. Pacific. I sit down and do a live YouTube chat. So it's not, this is pre-taped what I'm doing here now, but at noon Eastern, I just sit, camera's on, and people can write YouTube comments, and I, I reply to them, I show some clips. It's not as produced as this show, but it's sort of fun. And I do it every day at noon. I was away today at noon, I had a meeting, so uh, John Cardillo sat in for me. But I'll be back tomorrow. I uh, hope to see you then. Until tomorrow, either at noon for the Super Chat, as we call it, or 8 p.m. Eastern, good night, and keep fighting for freedom.